Hello and welcome to the Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford, founder of Startup Creative, author of How to Start a Side Hustle and resident business coach, serving you straight up business advice to help you start, grow and scale the business of your dreams. Welcome back to the Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford. And on today's episode, we chat to Karen, who is the founder of Radical Yes, uh, who is also the designer and maker of my new favorite boot. Highly recommend checking out their shoes. They're very comfortable uh, and I'm definitely living in my pair. Uh, But we caught up on what it takes to build a fashion brand, especially a local, smaller brand um, where you're not chasing big fashion trends and have huge amounts of money to invest, which is a pretty great topic considering I get asked this question or or work with a lot of clients in this really early startup space or who've maybe got their business or brand off the ground and are looking to scale and grow it. So Karen shares really openly and honestly with lots of incredible advice and tips about what it took to get her business off the ground, how she went about finding manufacturers and um, what she's done with going direct to consumers versus wholesale, as well as funding and and getting to know your numbers and managing investment that comes with starting a fashion label. Um, and then how do you uh, niche down and, and do what you're good at and stick to that as well? Lots of incredible advice for anyone looking to start a brand themselves um, and also just anyone looking to build a really loyal expanding following um, and target market of people who love what you do and become your super fans on your behalf. I think that Radical Yes have done a really incredible job of building their tribe of people who love what they do and and talk about it on their behalf. So Karen gives some insights into how they did that, even though they were a smaller, more expensive brand going up against some of the big guys. Uh, okay, enjoy the episode, guys. Let us know what you think. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Finally, I mean, we've been friends or connecting or in the creative scene for the beginning since your beginning, was it? Maybe. Oh, maybe not the beginning. Like I think you first came to the store when I first got that Queensbury Street lease, which was mm. like five years ago. Now we just wow. finished the first five years there. So that was was five years, but the brand's been going for nine years. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) How good. Um, Huge fan of your boots. Massive. Literally have been living in them, even when it's not boot weather. I'm like, they're just so comfy. Yeah. Yeah, they're so good. I like them with spring dresses, those boots. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really a dress kind of gal these days, but um, I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes yeah good point I'll, I'll leave um I'll leave you to that one but what you introduce <laughs> yourself and your business and what and what you do and how it all came about all right well my name is Karen as we've already established um and I am the founder of Radical Yes and Radical Yes is um a accessories brand um with a footwear focus 
and our um, ethos is flat shoe liberation. And flat shoe liberation is as much about the fact that we only sell flat shoes as it is about an aesthetic and a design aesthetic. Um, and so, and it's also, I guess, about a lifestyle um, consideration. So it's about women who are active um, on their feet and commuting a lot in their life, in their daily life. And, um, but also really enjoy fashion and enjoy being creative and stylish. So that was the foundations of the brand. And as I said, we started with footwear and we then did bags. Um, and we also did eyewear actually really early on because that's part of my background. And spoiler alert, we're doing eyewear again soon, <laughs> which is exciting. But, um, but yeah, so, so we are a footwear brand, but we're also a direct consumer. So we don't wholesale. We have a shop in Queensbury Street, North Melbourne, and then we have the online store. And we're pretty um, pure about not wholesaling. Um, and that's, again, part of our kind of um, a re reaction or reflection of mine and my business partner and my, my life partner, Leo's experience working in the industry, that we really wanted to, um, the, the whole purpose of the business was for us to be independent mm -hmm. and to be truly independent from a design perspective that uh, we find it's best to work directly with an end customer. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of the foundations. Um, there's also a whole philosophy that we have around um, Hasten Slowly, which a lot of people know us for as well. And I guess um, a big part of our um, decision-making always comes back to this idea of Hasten Slowly and that, you know, good businesses take a long time to build. Um, yeah, so, but it also comes in with, in terms of our design, um, in terms of our process with our manufacturers, pretty much every decision, I think, is guided by this idea of haste and slowly. Mm, I love it. There's so much to dive into, and I know <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to brand values and, you know, even niching down to the point of flats and um, all of that. But, I'm, yeah, I'm interested to hear about what was your um, background before starting um, Radical Yes? Yeah, so um, I worked um, as a product developer for many years for a number of different um, wholesalers in Melbourne and I, my job used to be to develop ranges based on trend and then go into like high street retailers, pre present the samples with trend boards and things like this and try and um, sell the ranges in. So some of my clients were like Sports Girl and Suzanne and Portman's back in the day. Um, and so my background was all sort of product facing and I guess trend. Um, whereas Leo had come from, he was the marketing manager for Sports Girl for um, a period of time. He'd also worked at Lee Jeans. So, and this was sort of in the noughties, like kind of period um, where manufacturing and production was really exploding, especially in China. And so um, we both came from these kind of, I guess, fast fashion backgrounds um, and we were working very hard and um, that was a, that was kind of like the opposite of what we wanted to do when we started the business mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so yeah and I mean it's interesting because I think how hard is it to break away from that you know like in the the fashion industry and I you know we're seeing it more and more so where people are choosing not to go with trends and, you know, fast turnaround and stuff that will end up in landfill and cheap production. 
Mm. Is it, I mean, it's all well and good and nice. And I think there's a lot of founders who, you know, and I've worked with clients over the years as well, who come in with that intention to go, Mm. well, I couldn't find a, you know, a, a brand that didn't, you know, exploit or you know that was made cheaply and things like that or Mm. or that wanted to sell to me over and over and over again maybe things Mm. that I didn't need um Mm. and a lot of ways that's why the fashion industry is so big right and powerful but yeah yeah, what what's it like actually I guess from from a founder's practical like behind the scenes perspective what is it really like to try and do something different in that space? It's hard because volume and scale is what can sort of support a big foundation. And the, tr- the trouble with fashion businesses is that they require a lot of manpower in a lot of ways. They're not kind of like, which we quickly learn as we were trying mm. to do everything ourselves. Um, and the, the trouble is when you need manpower and resource, you need to sell more things to support that. Um, to support the overhead. So it is a bit of a dichotomy going in. And it's sometimes it's not even like, oh, you know, I want to make a million dollars. It's just like, I just would like to, you know, we talk about a living wage. Well, it's the same thing, like when you're running a business, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, and when you start to do the maths on what it takes to generate the profit you need to support a business, you, you can find that small volumes are really challenging mm-hmm. from a from a purely practical point of view. So um, what what my suggestion on that is and how we've overcome it is you have to go very deep on the quality of your product um, and keep investing in your R&D and keep investing in the product and keep making the product better so that you can charge the prices that will support a small business. Mm-hmm. You can't have a small business um, you can't have low volume and low prices because you'll pretty quickly go broke. Mm-hmm. There's not enough in it. Yeah. So we've always tried to be, um, and your price architecture, I guess, is really important in, in determining like how long you can you can trade for, isn't it, in a way. Mm. Um, so, so for us, I learned that maths pretty quickly on. Like I was, as you know, like what you're saying, I was, I was probably a little bit naive and um, excited and being like, you know, I'm going to do this different and I'm going to like work in, in opposition to my experience. I'm going to make small quantities, which we still do, but we figured out pretty quickly we couldn't make small quantities and have high street prices. Mm-hmm. So I guess it just comes back to continually drilling down on your model and understanding what you need to, to keep it small. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why small brands, I guess, have to have, be confident in having niche prices. Mm-hmm. Um because it is, it's, it's hard. So I don't yeah. know if that answers the question at all. Yeah, no, I think it doesn't. I mean, it, it, I, you can answer it in lots of different ways, but I think the angle that you've gone with is like, yes, you can do small and, and, you know, quality, but it has to be reflective in your price point, you know, and I think if you're going to, yeah, keep it small, then yeah, which I think is really smart advice. And, you know, it's, it is a numbers game, you know, you've got to actually make more than what you spend in order for it to be a viable business. So, but which brings me to this idea of, yeah, the brand that you've created around being conscious, calling it radical. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, hasten slowly. I Mm -hmm. am well-versed in your, 
sure often our communications is about calling people Wonder Woman, which I yeah. love because it's yeah. a real, every time I read it, it's a celebration of each other. You know, it's yeah. this really, um, it's a really positive brand that you've built around that and the sustainability, I mean, we're not using the word sustainability, um, mm. but the brand values of of starting that business and then how do you you reflect them across everything that you do um was it did you start out with those high prices and how did you get people to uh, i guess yeah to invest in you as as a new brand like you've had incredible growth mm. over the years um mm. but yeah what was i guess like if we go back to that first range um you know what did that look like how did you go mm. about funding it and and to building it to maybe the size of where it is today and has that changed much Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, the first range was seven SKUs and it was all the same last, um, which means like we only opened one last to produce the first range. And um, Can it you was explain that just a little bit for people yeah, in the yeah. fashion, not so, in the fashion world like me? <laughs> yeah, no. So a last is, you know, you've probably seen those wooden, you see them sometimes in a romantic context oh. of like the silhouette of a foot. Yep. So that's what they use to build the shape of the upper pattern um, mm -hmm. and the outsole unit around. And the cost of opening the last is one of the main manufacturing costs that you'll mm -hmm. incur when you open new production. So we had to be clever and open just one last because just to keep costs down mm -hmm. with um, multiple upper patterns on them that were all of a similar kind of aesthetic. They were all little derby lace-ups. Um, and the idea was like one silhouette in multiple colorways um, so that the factory could make it easily, that we wouldn't need to um, do much because the costs come down to, th to things like grading, so opening all the different patterns and the sizes, mm -hmm. opening the patterns in the different sizes. Um, so, so that was definitely the original idea was a bit like on the original mood boards, we kind of had like vans you know, and um, Havianas, you know, where you have these great businesses that are clever and have these kind of hero products that you only need one product and you do it in multiple colourways. And that's kind of like in at the time in my mind was like the perfect business because mm -hmm. it, it didn't require extensive sampling and big ranges. And so that was part of the idea. Um, and so basically, yeah, if you have a minimal amount of production in terms of upper patterns and, and last that helps to keep the, the costs contained. But in terms of funding it, it is really hard to fund manufacturing, definitely. And we, that was, it's definitely a big barrier to entry for, for most brands. Mm. Um, and to be completely honest, we never ever would have done this if it wasn't for the support of one of our makers. Like the bank was never going to give me any money mm. at the time that I started the business. Um, especially the kind of money you would need to fund manufacturing. So what happened with us and where I'm a big believer in serendipity and just like, you know, I, I had done a lot of work on, I, after working really hard um, and I had, I'd had my first child and I was working in the industry and I was really burnt out. So I took a year off to do yoga teacher training and I did become a yoga teacher and do the full sabbatical. And that was, it was actually, it's amazing how much of my practice um, has supported me as a business owner. And it does to this day. I still practice um, very regularly. I have my own practice. But anyway, the point mm -hmm. there was um, 
Well, during my sabbatical, one of my makers came to me and he said, if you design the range, I'll fund the production and you just pay me back when you sell it. So you make this first round because he really believed in me. We'd have a very good working relationship. We designed some really cool products together that had been real winners. And he was just like, I know you can do this. And he really believed in me and vouched for me. Um, and look, looking back, I think he's he was just a really good salesman and just wanted to find a way to sell more product. And he had he had capital and he trusted me. So he funded me. Mm. Um, back then and um, that's kind of how it started and I think once I'd started and I the ball was rolling I I'm someone that can't put things down once I've started Mm -hmm. yeah can I ask how many was how much what was the first production run production what it would have cost no size wise oh yeah both size yeah it was probably about probably about 10,000 or 20,000 um, 20,000 Australian dollars, I would say. Um, because I mean, we made like 200 pairs of shoes. I was going to ask that because that, you know, and we're looking when I did my magazine years ago and it was my first issue and, you know, you kind of, you head down just getting the thing to, you know, to go and being happy with it. And then the stock arrives and you're like, shit, I didn't think beyond this. <laughs> I know. Sitting, and then it's all, it's all sitting there and you're just like, oh, I've just like, I feel like I just like had a win and now I have to sell this thing. Yeah. And it's that moment where you realize you've bitten off more than you can chew mm. and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to chew real hard here. Yeah. to get through this and just, yeah. yeah, blink it down. It was very much like that, okay? I know exactly that feeling you're talking about because I remember, I mean, I was lucky though too because with my maker, he was like, just make whatever quantity you want, which is unheard of mm. in China, especially at that time. And he was like, just, you know, you can make 10 of every style if that's all you sell. But the idea was to go and take it to wholesale. And I did mm. wholesale it and I got it into fat, which was a pretty cool store back in the day. Um, the first range got sold into fat and they sold it through and it was pretty great. Like I, I thought it was good, but unfortunately fat at the time were just right on the brink of going into administration and mm. having their own challenges. Um, and they were the only account that I got in my first season out. Mm. <laughs> so, um, cause the shoes are pretty out there. I thought they were pretty great actually, but anyway. <laughs> um, and so what happened was Leo had been mucking around with big cartel websites. And he's like, oh, let me just, let's just chuck one up. And he was mucking around with photography and stuff as well. Like we're very DIYers. And he's like, let's just chuck one up. So we did, like we just set up this big cartel site. And I'm a big cartel. I don't know if you know, but you can only put like, this is a long time ago. You could only put three products, no sizes. I don't know. It was like we had three shoes up there. It was seriously mm-hmm. nothing. And then all of a sudden, literally within like a couple of hours of putting it up, we got an order and I was like, oh, that'll be one of my friends. And we didn't know who it was from. <laughs> Amazing. So then that, and once, once I had the bug of online, having come from a sales background, I was, I was like, oh, this is pretty exciting. Mm. This could work. So that was, that was, that was Mm. before my second child was born. So yeah, I love that because it's, there's so much in it. A is just, you know, DIYing the website and, you know, being like, okay, well, we've got to figure out how to sell these and just getting to it, right? And I think yeah. a lot of people think, oh, I've got to have these big strategies or, you know, lots of stockists or, you know, mm. lots of followers in order to do that. 
Um, mm. And so it's, yeah, like that kind of staying close to your process as well. Um, and I always say to clients, like, you know, especially when they're starting out, it's like, yeah, get the website up because you don't know who's going to stumble across it. Um, yeah. And and also that I remember too, I don't know what year you're talking about, but like when I started, it, it was fun to be in digital marketing because it was like, I mean, I was learning through podcasts and eBooks. Um, but it worked, you know, and it yeah. was, and it's changed a lot. Um, but I think the mentality that is, you know, that sticks with us um, and that everyone I think should adopt is this idea of, yeah, don't outsource too quickly, you know, stay as mm -hmm. close to it and yeah, track it and see where that person lives and, you know, say hi to them and why did they buy it and where did they find you and, you know, mm -hmm. what can, how can you stay on top of, things because I think it's really easy to be like well if I get somebody else through my website or photos and all of a sudden everything's out of your control and mm. you can't um you know you have lots of outgoings and you don't you, yeah you're not you tracking really you important test, data. right yeah. yeah it gives you an opportunity to test with uh, with minimal risk that's mm. I guess the good thing about digital if you, yeah you can just keep you know tweaking it and yeah. yeah, you can yeah. find an audience much easier than when we yeah. were starting. Yeah. So, um, so what I, happened yeah. after? So you order these two hundred shoes, you make one sale on the internet. <laughs> uh, what happens? Um, from and then there? what happened was um, Leo kept um, to on that. I guess Leo kept sort of hacking Mailchimp, and we just became really obsessed with building our own client base because wholesale was hard and fraught and I also like I said I did come from a wholesale background and I just saw that there was a better opportunity in terms of um, the margin working direct with the customer giving you more flexibility because the trouble with wholesale businesses in my opinion is they require these huge volumes and then they work off very small margins and when you work off very small margins there's not a lot of room for error so if you're, especially with footwear, if you're buying a lot of shoes, which is really expensive production, footwear is much more expensive than garments to, to, to buy mm. um, at, a, at a manufacturing level. And then if you're wholesaling and going out to market and selling that and bankrolling the production for these retailers, which is essentially what a lot of, mm. especially back then, you were expected to give trading terms. And we just didn't have the money. Like we couldn't, mm. and I, I wasn't, I also am very risk averse and I, I had seen a lot of retailers not pay their bills. Not, mm. I'm not talking about high street retailers, but more like the independent. Mm. They just don't pay their bills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have no cash flow. You've, you've stumped up all this money to, to get production in. People are selling your stock or maybe they're not because they've thrown it on the floor. And then, you know, what happens with shoes is in most retailers, multi-brand retailers, you can see I'm, I've got quite a bee in my bonnet about this. But they throw the shoes on the floor underneath the garments. It's such a secondary thought. And then you get to the end of the season and they're like, yeah, they didn't sell. Mm. Like, well, why do you think that is? Because I'm selling them hand over fist in my mm. web store and I'm mm -hmm. talking directly to my customers and in my shop. So... Mm. I mean, that oh. explains the beautiful layout of your shop and how the shoes are on all the different layers and fillers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly right. You've got to elevate mm. them. And that, that's mm. part of it. Like footwear is a specialty category. It's not mm. an add-on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very complex category. And, um, and so that was part of my thinking of just like, I don't have the funds to bankroll other small retailers' business. I need mm. to focus on my own customers and my own market. So it's a very, mm. um, you know, a very 
decisive mm-hmm. move of like, I can't, that's, yeah. that's our model and yeah. that's what we focused on. Yeah, I love that. And it really goes with the brand of niching down and just sticking in your own lane, doing what you're good at, you know. And yeah. I think it's a really smart way to do it because, yeah, it's, they're two different mindsets, you know, or different mm. strategies that you have, retail, direct-to-consumer and wholesale. And, you know, it can also split your energy as well. And I think I had a similar experience years ago. I used to sell, you know, my first product was selling this six-week course to third parties, yeah. you know, and being like, hey, you should get me in to facilitate this. And I had that switch of being like, I'm actually just, I know what I've got is good. So I'm just going to go and tell the people who want it rather than convincing someone who doesn't even want this, but has, you know, is the gatekeeper. Um, And whilst it's a slower burn, it was the most, Mm. the best decision I made because yeah, you own your audience, you know what they like, you're in connection with them and yeah, you can tweak as you go and, and stay, you know, on top of it. Yeah, and mm. you're so true to true to what the end use, the end customer yeah. is is as opposed to getting your offer diluted by third mm. parties who've got their own aesthetics mm. and agendas, and quite often then you you know, I mean, like you can get a good retail partner. I sound quite jaded, and and there certainly can be good retail partners that can help you to grow your business. But I think coming back to this idea of being efficient. Um, we knew that we had A, finite resources in how much we could bankroll stock and B, finite resources in how much time we had. And so for me, it was a question of sitting back and going, where's the greatest margin mm. for the use of my time? Yeah. And, you know, and, and that was being direct to consumer and taking and working directly with the customers would mean that it would definitely take longer, but it would mean in the end the business would be more robust yeah. was my thinking. Yeah. I love that. No, it's, yeah. yeah. And I think it it's good. It's good to note. I mean, this is your story and your experience, but there is lots of different ways and people have got to figure out what's Definitely. right for them, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it, was there um, a timeline like, you know, we, the fashion world as well, I guess, of, of feeling an urgency to move that stock? Did it go out of, was it going to go out of um, style or trend or season? Vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's another part of the philosophy I guess is that we try and design to um something that's enduring and Mm. so you'll see that um in our collections we do a lot of repeat styles which again is part of the model um the reason that we do repeat styles is because we do invest really heavily in the outsole units which is the, the part of the shoe that you walk on um we invest really heavily upfront in um, pattern development and um, and constantly tweaking the patterns. So a lot of our shoes, one of the quirks of our brand is that we number our shoes like software. So um, it's like version 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. We often just, we listen to customer feedback, real life experience, and then tweak and, and spec it up again and spec it up again. So this is part of the radical in that we work in the opposite way to what my experience was, where you have new silhouettes, new season, new things every season, coming out with a whole new collection, throwing away, starting again, building new lasts, all this. We try and keep drilling down deeper and deeper on what we've made and what we know customers love. And in footwear especially, people do like wearing uh, the same shoe. They have a comfort in wearing the same shoe over, over many years. It doesn't really need to change. There are some really true classic 
styles and, you know, just by tweaking some colour or changing the way you do the stitch or changing the Velcro, for instance, like, you know, um, one of our most, I guess, enduring styles is called Journey. We're up to Journey 4.0, which we'll be doing this winter, 23, which we've made on two different outsole units and the, the uppers remain the same, but we, we change it around on different um, units. Um, and yeah, so for us, it's not about trend as much, but we, that doesn't mean that we don't speak to style and we don't speak to wanting things to look in a mm. certain aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that takes a long time of doing your business to learn mm. what that is. And I think mm. it's definitely shifted along the way and it probably will shift again, mm. which is part of the process, but I guess... I don't, we don't ever worry about rotten vegetables if that's mm. Mm. <laughs> because yeah. pretty it's a bit of an expression in the industry where it's like, oh, that's the rot, you know, rotten fruit market on, get it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, which is part of the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's a sale mentality too, which we, yeah. we try and really, I don't, I would never ever say we don't have sale because of course we do. I think any mm. retailer that goes out saying, I'm never having a sale, it's like, well, mm. You, you yeah. must have a really strong crystal ball then because there will yeah. always be stock that you need to sell at a markdown. Yeah, for sure. And I like that and I think it's, you know, again, back to working with a lot of people who are starting out a brand and it's really easy to sit down and be like, what are your brand values? What are you going to stand for? How are you going to stand with them? And actually, you know, really sticking to them. And I'm interested because, you know, you you have come out and been like, we do flats and we're all about comfort and we're all about quality and we're not following. Ha has there been moments where you've, you know, felt tempted or you've had to be, you know, someone put your values in front of you and be like, hey, come back to this? Like, how has it been hard or have you ever felt, um, you know, like like you have? Existential crisis. Yeah, I've been like, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think you, you have that when you're a business owner anyway, that you sit back and go, oh, well, what have I created? Mm -hmm. um, let me have a think about how to answer this. Look, I think the first thing is I would never want sustainability to be uh, the number one marketing message of my brand. Sustainability is something that has to be done internally mm. um, regardless. You shouldn't use it for marketing purposes is my philosophy. And there's a few reasons on this. One is like you shouldn't make it the customer's problem that you're a manufacturer. You should be doing your own due diligence and making sure that you're, you know, working with ethical factories um, that you're sourcing as ethically as you can within the realms of your resource. But making it, putting it front and centre in your marketing messages is just, number one, it's a bit, it's kind of dangerous, to be honest, because, ah, oh, this is such a big topic. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's probably more so even if, to, to cover off on the side of design wise and, you know, um, yeah, have you ever questioned, you know, or feared the future of your business or the ability? I guess the reason I asked the question is because I think, you know, in even more of a saturated marketplace than probably when we both started and carved out a bit of our own, you know, turf mm -hmm. is the need, like the, I 
the need to niche down and not be everything to everyone and have to do mm. it all and, you know, shifting mm. and then, you know, flowing with every new idea or trend that comes, you know. Mm. Um, and has it been easy for you to stick to, yeah, we're doing comfortable flats and, um, you know, uh, and, you know designing this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, that, that's been easy for me because it's very authentic. I don't wear heels. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't cover them. I don't even look at them and think they're mm. attractive. Um, you know, some people will think, I don't know, I'm I'm such a flat shoe wearer, I always mm. have been. I'm a tomboy at heart. Mm. I've never really done the heels thing. So that that's that's an yeah. easy decision. Yeah. Um which is good because you know, I think that's a, it's a really good piece of advice for people is like, yeah, put, putting yourself as the customer and keeping that center and doing what you know and what you're good at and not trying to branch out and you know do things because you feel like you have to or yeah, oh totally. Yeah, mm. totally. And also, I guess as a small brand, it's so good to have a boundary. Mm. It's like, because otherwise that's when the confusion sets in, when you've got too many choices to make. Mm. Putting boundaries around yourself is just the easiest way to say that's outside of, of my domain. I don't need to think about mm. it. Yeah. And I, I've never had any, um, I've never suddenly gone, oh, my God, heels are trending. I should be making, I mean, like right now there's a tall boot thing going on, which mm. like we have these kind of, in the studio, these conversations around, oh, we should be showing a tall boot. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, there's reasons, there's so many reasons not to from a pra pragmatic point of view, like they're big objects to own for people to house in their covers. They're expensive to make. They're expensive to ship. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just like they change all of our packaging. And I know it's trending and I know we could probably sell some, but and we've tried to do them, but they're hard to fit. And it's mm -hmm. like just... Just let there be a boundary. It makes yeah. your job easier, especially when you're a small business, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. great advice. I will yeah. say that I do appreciate the couple of centimetres you've given me on my boot. <laughs> what, oh, what was the name of the brand? That, the, it's got a bit of pitch. That's yeah. Orion's guys. Yes, yeah. I know. And I'm like... I guess that's why, and we do make flat forms, so they do have yeah. height, yeah, but without the pitch. Yeah, no, I pitch, love it. Which is the heel being higher than the toe. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a heels person at all. But you know, as a short person, <laughs> being able yes. to wear something comfortable that gives me a little bit, a little extra. I'm like, yes, this is the best. <laughs> I know. Well, and it's funny with the comfort thing too, because that can get really curly as well. Because mm. then people come to us thinking that we're echo, which we are also not. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yes, we're comfortable, but, um, and we, we certainly um, do a lot of work around looking at the EVA and the memory foam and the, 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 the midsoles and what, what the best compositions of materials are underfoot. And we've got mm -hmm. the removable insole. And, but it's always about managing people's expectations and, mm -hmm. and accepting that you can't service all the people, right? So it kind of comes back to that same thing of, mm -hmm. like, this is, what we, this is what we work to. And mm -hmm. sometimes people, come to us thinking we're something that we're not and mm -hmm. that's okay because they're just not our customer and mm -hmm. that's okay. Yeah. And so I that's that. why I think having like very disciplined customer groups um, is so fundamental when you're a small business mm -hmm. because you can't service, you can't service everyone. Mm -hmm. And actually the businesses that try to service everyone like department stores, 
really struggle mm. because there's no point of differentiation. Yeah, I love that. And it's, you know, getting clear about who you're, like all of this stuff is, you know, I wrote about it in my book and I talk yeah. about it all the time. And it's like, this is where it comes into play, you know, because other, especially once you start and you start getting customer feedback, it can be really easy for people oh, to be like, yeah, um, to to want to drag you in different directions. And, you know, when you're, yeah, you are trying to make a business viable, it can be easy to also be like, well, maybe we should because, you know, it, there's money mm -hmm. there. So you have to have, yeah, I really like that having that strong foundation so that you're driving the ship whilst taking on feedback, but making sure it's the feedback from the right people. That's right. And we mm. often talk about like, so with our customer service team, we, we have, um, we do like quarterly workshops, who is our customer? And we have three mm. person, you know, um, profiles of who she is. Um, and that also makes it easier for them in managing um, challenges because mm. they can sit back and say, was that my customer? Is that our customer? Is mm. that, so we've got three names, is um, Grace, Zoe and Ella. Mm -hmm. Was it Grace, Zoe and Ella? Yes or no? If it was no, that's okay. We'll still give mm. them lots of love, but then it's okay if it's not working mm. out because that's not who we service. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> such great yeah. advice. I'm interested because yeah. you've definitely had, you have such a loyal fan base. I think when I tagged your shoes, I had um, a bunch of people, mutual friends, but also and I've seen some other people having similar boots, your boots since, um, not that I'm taking credit for influence in that, <laughs> okay. but I will. No. Um, yeah. But people from lots of, yeah. Yeah. People, people from lots of different walks of my life um, yeah. and ha wrote and said, A, you're amazing, and B, we love that brand. And it, it was really beautiful to see. And the reason... I think we reconnected as I was at a friend's, um, I was at a family dinner and a, a friend, um, Perry, actually I'll give her a shout out, was raving about your bright oh. blue um, sandals and oh. was like, oh, oh double yeah. happiness. Yeah, loved them. <laughs> was Honestly gave me your sales pitch in that um, was like, these are the best sandals and I've bought so many expensive sandals over the years and big brands and this and that, but there is nothing like this. And I was like, what brand is it? And she was like, radical, yes. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I do have to do about it. Um, oh, but, well, like, thanks, Perry. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Perry. Um, yeah, but like, wh where do you feel like I know going, you know, comparing that 200 stock with the online sale with the big cartel that you kind of made up to, you know, yeah. lots, this cult following of people who love what you're doing. What do you yeah. think the, the kind of tipping point was there or how did how did you cultivate that and what is your kind of advice for brands wanting to, I guess, to build yeah. that? I think that my biggest piece of advice is like you've got to put your arms around your product category so hard and learn so much about what you're making. And for me, the moment when I went from being a product developer of footwear to really trying to learn more about the technical aspects of the product and then sharing that with the audience, um, because back in the day when we began, you could get lots of, I mean, you still can now, you know, you can get anything made. Anyone can get anything made. You jump on Alibaba, you can get it made. But you have to learn to be a true technician and really understand the product. Don't leave it to the factory and be really authentic in wanting to learn because you're selling them a product. 
And when things go wrong, which they will, because you're manufacturing, things always go wrong, learn from it and take it on board and use that as your marketing. Use that as like, this is what we've learned in our design process and mm. this is how we fixed it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that thinking came from um, Seth Godin, who I know you've mm. read a lot of, where like you can have the best marketing in the world, but if you don't have good product, it's all, it's all for mm. nothing. Mm-hmm. And so when we became obsessed with our product and not just obsessed with our marketing, that's when the business really mm-hmm. took off and changed. Yeah. Um, and it meant we had to change factories mm-hmm. because our maker at the time was, um, he was like a trading agent. It wasn't his factory. So, and we needed to work directly with the factory so we could learn and, and get better at what we were doing and really become good shoemakers. And when, mm-hmm. when we made that decision... And, and shared that journey with our customers, then that was a big shift for us. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I look at yeah, we thought we were hard. Mm. Mm. One of my favourite Seth Godin quotes, um, which I reread recently, is um, make uh, products to suit your customer, not find, don't go and find customers to suit your product. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, that core advice of like, yeah, you should be existing yeah. for somebody's, you know, need or want or or desire rather than, hey, we want to run a brand and this is our thing, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you just can't, for us, we just take every customer comment, Mm. we take it all on board, every Mm. single comment, every single interaction with a customer. And that was another thing about being direct consumer that we were able to do that. I mean, look, Kay, for five years, I was standing in the front of the shop selling Mm. the shoes myself so Mm. I could get an immediate understanding of how they're fitting and seeing them on different feet and learning about it and and having conversations with what people really wanted for their shoes and what they expect and so I had a lot of first-hand knowledge and I think um again like that was one of the golden things about being direct consumer and getting that direct um information on the product and building that with the community and I think a lot of my our long-term customers really feel part of that journey because they know me from being in the store they know that mm. I was standing there and I would like and as you know I used to have the, the office out the back of the shop and mm. I'd be like oh I've just got this sampling can you just throw it on your foot mm. and show me it and I can see it and bringing people on the journey of your design process and letting mm. them letting your customers be a part of that and giving them permission to have an opinion on 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 that is so mm. So fundamental to continuing mm. to grow, I think. But you yeah. also, like you said before, got to stay a little bit ahead so you can keep them inspired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. I love that, and I think it's beautiful advice of keeping yeah your customer front and center, um, and getting that real time feedback. And yeah, you know, I think existing to serve those people who are super fans, um, which he, yep. Seth Godin talks about a lot too, you know, like that real tribe building um, yeah. rather than ig- trying to have big, fast, quick growth because, you, you know, you want to get out there and you want to be this big thing or, you know, overnight. Um, mm. Yeah, there's no it, such thing as overnight success. <laughs> no, it re- there's no, <laughs> absolutely. No. Even now I still have moments where I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, I wanted this once upon a time and, you know, you, you set your goals and your dreams and your vision and, you know, you, you get up and you're doing it every day and you still sometimes forget that you're actually you're achieving it because you kind of, I've, I remember the moment of being like, it doesn't come in that flash. It really does come where it's like you're treading, treading, treading and then you're like, 
oh, hang on, I'm actually getting somewhere. Yeah, mm. I know. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it continues to happen because I think the goals never, like they keep growing and you keep setting them. So, um, and then so in terms of like that, I guess, yeah, staying really close and reinvesting in the brand and, you know, learning as you go, um, what's the trajectory been like um, over the last nine years from that, you know, first um, first production run? Um, look, the first five years were really hard, really, really hard and we didn't have any money and we had a lot of problems um, with our manufacturing. Um, but we, we had a lot of creativity though as well. Um, and we were living, we were living really frugally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we were living, we had small children and we were living a creative life. And that mm-hmm. was kind of the fundamental goal of, of trying to do the business and there were many times that Leo and I would sit down and go man we are kidding ourselves like why are we doing this we can't do this forever um and you know real crisis talks of like how long can we keep doing this and um we did like you do have those real and I I kind of liken it to a marathon where you know you're like I can't do this anymore I can't Mm. I just want to stop and it's normally at those moments where you're like I can't do this anymore, but you're just on the other side of a breakthrough. And I feel like that happens a lot. And I have it now. I don't, I don't have that. I don't want to do this anymore, but I certainly do have the, man, this is tiring. This is hard. It is hard. Um, running a business is hard. And actually as it gets bigger, it gets more complex. Um, so the, it's the, not, it's almost you don't reach Yeah. I think mm. one of the, um, I remember my first magazine asking somebody, what's the bit, the hardest part about running a business or, you know, your number one lesson and they, they'd they said, you know, that you, yeah, you never reach an end goal. You know, it's not like when you're in a nine to five where you're like, one day I'll be CEO, you know, it's yeah. this thing of like, cool, and that the bar keeps moving. Um and managing that but what any mindset tips because I actually had this conversation with my my online membership this morning of people being like you know at hitting that rock bottom of being like what am I doing you know you kind of get on the job seeker sites <laughs> and you're like maybe I should just you know tap oh, yeah. out over here um but yeah like I mean my thing is like they're the times where I've learned the best lessons and figured out how to make it work when I never thought you know where you where you're ready to think that it possibly can't but what was what has you and Leo done in those moments or how do you kind of move through them um what have we done like you've got to Normally we've taken on some commitment that we can't walk away from. <laughs> so you Throw yourself in the deep end. Yeah, that's normally been like the case. Like we've, you know, invested something. So like, for instance, we've opened some outsole moulds and it's like, well, we've got to see this through now because we've just invested, you know, 8,000 US dollars in this mould or this is going back a ways. But, um, yeah, I think mindset I've got a good one from my yoga practice, which I don't know whether or not this is this is similar, but my one of my I, I did Ashtanga for many years, and my Ashtanga teacher said to me, Yeah, because Ashtanga is a six-day-a-week practice and it's very disciplined. You do the same thing every day, six days a week. It's a very hard practice. Um, 
And she said to me, the thing that you have to learn is if you want to keep doing something consistently over many, many years is you have A days, you have B days and you have C days. 70% of your life will be C days. You know, 15 or 20% of your life will be B days and A days will be about 5% or whatever, you know, that's probably not quite mm-hmm. the right mouse, but you know. <laughs> so you live mostly in C days and accepting that and going, this is just, this is just a C day. And also it's just a day and it's mm-hmm. going to pass. Mm-hmm. That does get me through. Um, and I think looking at where you started and where you've arrived is always a good tactic. Um, I think, but the money thing can be the hardest thing. And I think mm-hmm. that's when people really feel it, like they get up against a wall where it's like, I've got no money. I've got no mm-hmm. sales. I've, I owe lots of people money. I've created this big business and I'm, I'm feeling out of my debt. Mm-hmm. So I, I often think most of our periods where it's just truly like, I guess terrifying in some ways is when the money's been really big mm-hmm. and stressful. Mm-hmm. So, um, so learning about money and mm-hmm. um, and how to manage money really efficiently mm-hmm. is is a really important part of running a business, I think. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's getting through. comfortable with it because I think often it's something mm. we kind of push to the side, but it's, you know, it really is the fundamental thing between a business and a side hustle, like a hobby or whatever, you know. It's the yeah. core difference. but um, And it's such an emotionally charged topic. But, you know, I mm. think bringing it, whenever you're avoiding something, it's always a sign you've got to, you know, bring it front and centre and take a good mm. hard look at it. Mm, for sure. Well, I'm always saying to my friends who've got businesses, and I've said this to a few people over the years, because, you know, you know, when people say, oh, I hate spreadsheets, I'm not mm. going to, I'm not going to look at the spreadsheet. It's like, man, don't have a business then. Because mm. it's like, it is all about, like, yes, it's not as creative and it's not as um, fun. Like, well, I mean, I kind of find it fun. So I'm, especially now um, that I've, I've had many years of learning, mm-hmm. but you have to learn about P&L and balance sheet, mm-hmm. I think. Well, it's, as, when it has a purpose too, because, you know, it means that your business, you can, you understand your business, you feel empowered or you know what you can spend or you can celebrate mm-hmm. your wins, you know. Mm. giving it yeah you know, yeah for sure or you can um, see where you're spending too much or, yeah. yeah and I think that's it hey it's like you do you get up and you do those sea days and you work through it and you you know you're doing the planting your seeds and setting your foundations and getting ready for the next thing and then yeah you have those little moments of like oh, wow you know this sale came through or this person's reached out or this opportunity's happened and it's really anchoring in those celebration of those days because it's so easy for that five percent to just kind of wash by and we're like oh yeah cool like celebrated that for a hot second let's go back to the slogging but I always try to stop and really anchor in the wins I think as well it's like accepting like yeah that life is not a days Mm, right (laughs) and I think and it's so easy to watch other people's businesses and to be like, oh, yeah, I want that and this is what their life must be like. And it's like, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, and I'd love to, like, finish us up with some advice or, you know, tips around how do you do, like, work-life balance, obviously with a family and your partners in your business as well. 
Um, I don't know, we were just chatting before we recorded about the idea of, um, I don't know about you, but coming back after lockdowns and, you know, life feels really busy all of a sudden and how do we find that balance with our own health and our well-being and mental health and family mm-hmm. and connections and, yeah, readjusting. But what a, how do you manage that as someone who obviously loves what you do and, you know, mm-hmm. it does have a, a um, you know, a small local team as well? Mm. Um, look, it is hard. I, I, less, I found it much harder in the pandemic because working from home, I felt like I was always at work. Mm-hmm. Um, or even before, like actually we used to work just from home um, mm-hmm. before the pandemic and I always found that hard switching off. If my computer's there, I tend to just work. I have to be very conscious. Um, exercise is fundamental to, to like my life and mm-hmm. like doing at least, um, you know, a couple of strength training and my yoga and things like that. That keeps me um, away from work and strong mm-hmm. and I think that that's really important and my children obviously um my family is my highest value and that is why I have a business mm-hmm. um because then I can support having flexible extreme flexibility to be there mm-hmm. for them as they grow up and that was one of the reasons that we decided to stick it out because mm-hmm. being with our kids as Leo's an amazing father and he spends so much time with his children and um that was a part of like, I don't want a career, but mm. I, I want something that can support being a good mm. you know, parent. Mm-hmm. So with family as our highest value um, and our kids are very much intertwined in the business. My, my oldest son does a bit of pick and pack and mm. um, my baby son when he was born was like in all the shops with us and, you know, it's, it's part of their lives as well. Mm. Um, but to answer your question about balance, I, I think it, it just comes uh, over many years of just, I guess work um, has become more part of my life anyway. And so I used to be very like blinkers on if I was working, I just couldn't get anything else into my head. But from having my family, I think you do just soften and make more space for it. I don't think that answers it very well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there is no right or wrong. It's good to hear different ways of how people do it. And to me, it sounds like, you know, when you love what you do and, you know, it doesn't need to be completely separated, you know, it's like it's a part of your life and your family and everything. Yeah, I think it is. It has become that. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's good just to take the pressure off of when you say work-life balance, it creates all these other things of like, I'm not making enough time for my life now. And then somebody put pressure on and yeah. Yeah. yeah, No. And (laughs) to finish this off, is there any final tips or advice or things, lessons you've learned along the way for somebody out there who might be looking to start their own label? Well, looking to start. What's game? I'd say, I think my advice is better suited to someone who's maybe like a year in and they're just like really ready to throw in the towel because they're exhausted. I just say, just don't give up. Like, just mm. keep going and just like give yourself a break, make some space. And mm. I think that's probably, um, but, but to get started, um, just start, you know, mm. don't do, like you said, like, don't, don't try and make it perfect. I've got a really good saying. Here's a good one. Mm. Um, you have a um, tractor and then you build it into a Ferrari. Because, yeah. you know, Ferrari, oh, my son always corrects me on this. I think it might be Lamborghinis, but Lamborghinis make tractor engines. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, love- the point is you make a mess at the beginning and you clean it up as you go. <laughs> oh, I love that. Great <laughs> advice. Yeah. Thank you so much and congratulations okay. on everything Thank that you're you. doing. Keep going. Having you on. I really appreciate it. Oh, I love having you. It was a great chat and so much straight up business advice, which is what we're all about. So, yeah, perfect. Wonderful. Thank you. So lovely to see you. Thanks, Kay. I'll see you soon.